sermon series. It's called Close Encounters with Jesus. Uh, we're looking mainly at the Gospel of Luke, although tonight I'm going to depart from that. We're going we're gonna to listen to John. But, um, but remember the questions I asked you last week if you were here? Taylor's nodding her head. That's good. You weren't here. So, uh, but the questions I asked last week, here's a quick recap, is where do you get your ideas, your opinions, your thoughts about God, or in particular about Jesus? You remember I read those uh, kind of humorous quotes from people your age across America as they're uh, being interviewed in that sociological survey. And, and we kind of fumble a lot of times when we're asked, who is Jesus? What is he about? What did he come for? Why does he matter in my life today? But where do your thoughts about him come from? Do they come from experiences you've had, good or bad? Do they come from your gut opinions? Do they come from family life, your parents' beliefs? Do they come from kind of your life philosophy or whatever way you've piecemealed, figured out to work out life, maybe your emotions. And the second question is, this semester, will you allow Jesus to tell you who he is? Instead of us, kind of our tendency to live off hearsay. Well, he's like this because I feel this way. I didn't get this, and so he's like that. But will you let Jesus reintroduce himself to you through his word? Uh, Will you let him tell you why he came? And we said uh, the gist of last week was this. God sent his son into the world to save the world, not to condemn the world. And so when God comes near to you now, it's not to judge you, but it's to rescue you. And so we're going to actually look at that passage tonight from John 3.16. Everybody in the room knows what we're talking about tonight. Maybe you don't know the context, and so um, hopefully in a few minutes you will. And let me, um, let me tell you real quick a couple of points we're going to be looking at tonight from John 3. It's on, the, on your bulletin. Two points. There we go. I cut a point out. Two points. With man, salvation is impossible. And you can intersperse whatever word you want in salvation. Being made right with God or being on good terms with God or coming alive in Jesus. But whatever. Salvation is impossible. Period. With man. And salvation is entirely possible with God. And so with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Those are the two points. Easy to follow, huh? Let's stand up. We'll read this passage. And no matter where you are in terms of your belief about uh, the things of the Bible or Christianity, this is a sermon for you. And so if you're a Christian, it can be tempting to say, oh, this is a sermon for people who don't know Jesus. No, no, no. John wrote this to people like you. Uh, to encourage you, because uh, all of us need to hear these things, and hopefully you'll know why in just a minute. But this is the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you've done unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, or truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He's supposed to enter the room a second, enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel what I've said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? 
Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And, this is important, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, for whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him isn't condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. But people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together, and then we can uh, take a seat. Uh, Lord Jesus, we know that you, you tell us that faith comes through hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. And so what, what is about to happen, you promise this is the way that you plant faith in our hearts. This is the way that you nourish and grow our faith as we look at you and behold you. Yet, I feel blind, and I feel deaf, and I feel dumb. And I know my friends do too. And so we call out to you and ask you to please come and enable us to see you as you are. Do more than I could ever do because my friends don't need me. They need you, and I need you. And so would you be pleased to come and do these things? Make a spectacle of this tonight for your own glory and your own fame. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, take a seat. When I'm watching TV and I hear the words, kids don't try this at home, I tune in. Because I know something really cool is about to happen, and chances are something really cool that I would like to do at home is about to happen. And so I always like stop whatever else I'm doing and I watch what they're doing. Usually it's on Mythbusters or some other show like that when they always begin every program with, these are professionals, don't do this at home. And... Uh, Maybe, uh, probably over 50% of the time, I've done Mythbusters uh, at my house. And so, but here's the deal. We're also the YouTube generation, and so the only thing that stands between you, you and me, and masterful expertise of some technique is a 10-minute YouTube video. You watch a little vid- YouTube video, and suddenly we've all become experts in it. You can fix your car. You can fix the appliance in the house. You can do whatever. You can fix the heater. Um, Anna isn't. Anna is sick. I think this is good because I'm about to throw her under the bus, <laughs> and myself. I meant at several points today to ask her if it was okay to say that she'll be fine with it, but I didn't get a chance to because she got home late from work, so she's not feeling good tonight. But anyway, I proceed to throw her under the bus. <laughs> to illustrate the YouTube stuff about watching a video and thinking we're experts in it, and the don't try this at home stuff, um, I get a call about two weeks ago because um, Anna got back in town. A couple of nights before I did, she had to work, um, and I was studying for ordination. And so she's back here, and our house had been largely 
uh, vacant for about a month. Um, and so Anna found out when she got home and tried to take a shower, the hot water heater had just been sitting there for a month. And so the hot water had turned like musty, moldy smelling. And um, believe it or not, she didn't want to smell like must and mold uh, when she went to work. And so uh, she called me, and the first words out of her mouth were, uh, Hey, Ben. And she sounded like she just needed a piece of advice to continue what she was doing. She wasn't like, what do I do? She was like, Hey, Ben, uh, how do you break into the hot water heater so I can pour in hydrogen peroxide? And I said, Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait. Break, break into and pour in hydrogen peroxide. Let's back up a few steps. And she said, no, no, no. I know what I'm doing. I've got YouTube pulled up. I'm watching it step by step. And I'm, I'm counseling her, hey, how about we call a plumber or perhaps our landlord, whose responsibility this is, instead of busting open the hot water heater with like 50 gallons of water, I'm imagining a flooded house when I get home. And then there's the time when I'm a kid and... Uh, I saw on TV uh, some little boys who had cut a hole in the wall to make a secret compartment for secret things you don't want your parents to see. Um, And so I immediately run downstairs. There wasn't a don't do this at home kid, so maybe this is why. But I I immediately go downstairs to the basement, and I go to my little workshop, and I pull out my keyhole saw, and I punch it through the wall. And I cut myself out a little rectangle about that big. And... uh, and I put my little secret stuff in there, and I put the piece of sheetrock back so my dad won't know. Until the next morning, when I hear my dad screaming my name uh, from down in the basement, Ben, get down here. So I go downstairs, and not only has my dad found my secret anti-parent compartment uh, cut into the wall, but he says, look in there. And I looked in the hole that I had cut in the wall, and I had frayed a huge electrical wire with my metal saw And I was like less than a millimeter away from going straight into that thing. And I had no idea that that was even there until he came down and showed me. And so it's another time, like Anna, uh, like those of you missing digits and limbs from doing stuff at home you shouldn't have. It's another time I should have taken the advice, don't try this at home. Um, Don't try this at home. Leave it to the professionals. And so the passage that we just read, you can think about this way. it's, it's Jesus saying, salvation, don't try this at home, kids. Don't try this at home. Why? Well, why do they say those warnings on TV? Why does Mythbusters, Jackass, all these other people, why do they say it beyond trying not to get sued for billions of dollars? The reason they say it is you don't have the expertise, you don't have the knowledge, you don't have the wisdom, you don't have the equipment, you don't have the resources to do what they're doing. And so if you do it, and if you think it's simpler than it seems, disaster awaits you, or electrocution, or a flooded house, or whatever else. And so they say, don't try this at home. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look, this isn't so simple. Don't take things into your own hands and start trying to make yourself right with God again. This is for people who've been in the church their whole lives. This is for Christians. This is for people who are not Christians. This is who he's speaking to. Don't try this at home. Why does he have to say it to us? Why do all of those shows have to put that little ticker across the bottom that we love to, uh, love to break and love to go straight home and, and do it? Well, they put it across the bottom for reasons everyone in the room knows. We are deeply independent people, right? We love to be in control. We love to have a hand in fixing stuff that goes bad. Or we, we oversimplify things and we overestimate our abilities consistently, habitually. 
So we see these things on TV and we're like, I can do that. Famous last words. Um, And even if you're not the person who goes home and blows stuff up in the backyard, you're still a person who likes to take things into your own hands. When it breaks, the first person we go to to fix it is us. And we do the same thing with our hearts. We do the same thing with our emotions. We do the same thing with our soul. And Jesus is saying that will kill you. Or better yet, that will leave you remaining dead. Just as dead as you were, it will leave you dead. It can't do anything for you. Um, And so for independent people, John 3 is for us. And the Apostle John knows this. That's why he puts this, bam, front, right up front in his gospel. It's because he says, "I I wrote this gospel, this account of Jesus, so that you might believe and have life in Jesus. And so he knows what kind of people he's writing to. They're people like us. Do-it-yourselfers, right? People who see that stuff and go home and say, I can do that. People who do that with our hearts and with, soul, with our souls as well. And so if you can relate to that, thinking that we do have the knowledge, the expertise, or if you kind of, you know you don't. You, you would never tell someone, I'm able to make myself right with God. I'm able to clean up my heart. I'm able to cleanse my conscience and remove my shame. You would never tell someone you're able to do that. But you slide back into thinking that you're able, like me. Why? How do you know? Because you're always ashamed when you fail. You're surprised when you fail. You always feel like you've got to keep up. There's this tsunami waiting to catch up with you, and you've got to be on your game. You've got to keep your performance up, or else God's going to abandon you. You've got to keep working. You've got to keep the track record up. And if you fail, you curse yourself. That's how we know that functionally we become do-it-yourselfers in this stuff. And if that's you, you have a lot in common with Nicodemus and me. Because that's what Nicodemus is like. How do I know that? Am I just making this up? I'm not. Because John keeps drawing attention to this in the first part of the passage. If you look down at your, your green page, you'll see this. What, is he, what details does John draw attention to? If you're reading the Bible, always look at the details the author pulls into the spotlight. Which details about Nicodemus does John pull into the spotlight and say, look at these? Okay, one, he is a leader of the Pharisees. This is kind of the, 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 good, the good people, the, the straight-laced people, the walk-a-straight-narrow-line people, the people who, if you saw anybody in your town you thought was close to God, it was these guys. They were legit. They didn't cut corners. They were devoted. They tried hard. They, they didn't make compromises like the rest of the people. And not only was he a member of the Pharisees, he was a teacher of all of Israel. I.e., he's a theologian of theologians. He's like the Matt Chandler or the Tim Keller or the John Piper or the Mother Teresa, whatever your little brand of theology is. He's that person in this area. Everybody, when he talks, they listen. When he gives advice, they follow. That's what kind of person we're talking about. Um, And he's the leader of the Jews. And so those are the details John draws attention to. And so like I said, if you thought there was a guy that had it together in terms of his relationship with God, this is the guy. Uh, It's Nicodemus. And yet, when he comes to Jesus, doesn't it look like all that expertise and knowledge kind of evaporates, floats away? Because he kind of seems all thumbs when he's talking to Jesus. Like, Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel? Really? And, and yet, this is surprising to you. Uh, and so that's what kind of person um, we're dealing with. And so what does Jesus do with Nicodemus in the night when he is probably coming in honest humility and trying to, trying to piece together the dots? What's going on here? Who is this guy? Just like we talked about last week, 
He'd heard stories. He'd kind of had an idea about who Jesus was, but he wanted to go hear from Jesus' mouth who he was and what he came for. And so he goes under the cover of night, and he asks Jesus. And Jesus kind of like, it almost kind of comes out of nowhere. Nicodemus doesn't really ask him, how can I enter the kingdom of heaven? Why not? Because Nicodemus presumes he's already in it, right? If there's anybody who's in with God, it's me. It's a, no, it's a no-brainer. I'm a shoe-in. So he never asked the question, how do I enter the kingdom of God? But Jesus goes there. Jesus circles back to the drawing board and he says, you know what, Nicodemus? It is impossible for anyone. It is impossible for you to be saved. Apart from being born again. Did you let the first part of that sentence sink in? Because I think a lot of times we scoot fast past that and the words don't have the explosive impact. Did you hear him say, with man, with you, with me, moving towards God, repairing the relationship, coming alive, having power is impossible. You can't do it. Throw in the towel, give up, wash your hands and walk away, abandon the effort. That's explosive stuff from the mouth of Jesus. Because here's a man who'd given his whole life to just the opposite. And yet Jesus doesn't stop there, obviously. But he's, he's, he's dismantling this religious guy, this guy who went to all the campus ministry meetings, the guy that was on the leadership team and everything else. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Nicodemus, we've got to go back to the drawing board and we're going to look at the inside of you not the outside trappings, not the external behavior. We're going to look at the inside. And so Jesus starts talking about this thing, this metaphor called new birth. Of all these different metaphors, this is the one that he appeals to. He says, you know what, Nicodemus, here's what it's like. It's kind of like being born a second time, and Nicodemus doesn't get it. Nicodemus is thinking like gynecology. Jesus is talking theology. He's like, how do I climb back in a womb? Probably sarcastically. Probably derisively, like putting Jesus in his place. And Jesus is like, "Uh, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Just the way that you were born physically had no effort involved in it yourself. Passively, helplessly, you were born. So also, that's the way the new birth looks like. The Bible calls it regeneration, being made new or made again. When God comes to a dead person and he breathes life in them. And the new person that gets up isn't the old person. That person remains dead. The new person who gets up is a renewed, rejuvenated, resurrected person who is finally alive, finally has something at their core. No more hollowness, no more emptiness, no more weightlessness, blowing around whichever way the wind blows, but someone who is anchored, someone who is alive. That's what Jesus is talking about. Here's a quick thing I need to say. Psalm, when the Bible looks at you the way that you were born, the way that I was born, physically in the hospital room, the Bible is very sad at that moment. Why? Because David says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was born, I was conceived in iniquity, i.e. in guilt and sin and death. And so in a sense, spiritually, in our relationship with God, we're stillborns. Does that make sense? Dead in our sins. And so until God comes to that dead person, that spiritually dead person, and raises them up, guess what continues to happen? They march along happily thinking they're alive. And here's where this really hits close to home. And I'm going to read you something to give you a little bit more of my story. 
uh, which I think will hit, hit close to home with a lot of you as well. But where this, where this intersects with our lives and our stories is this. Nicodemus shows us it's possible to be neck deep in the church, neck deep in the Bible, neck deep in ministry, neck deep in relationships with other religious and, and, and Christian people. Believing good things, having charity for the poor, confessing your sin, and yet still dead. Whoa. See, don't try this at home. Why? That's dangerous. It's more complex than it looks. You can be, every single thing about you on the outside can say life, 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 life. And everything on the inside says death, death, death. No life, no power, no energy, no joy, no love, no hope, no faith. Can you relate to that? Some of you have stories where you very much remember what life was like with that. For some of you, life is like that now. For some of you, by God's grace, you haven't known a day like that. Maybe you've had little tastes of it, but that, that kind of black hole of a soul where it just sucks everything in it, and it's empty, and it has an echo Maybe that's not very familiar to you, but you've had little tastes of it. That's the kind of life Nicodemus lived. Imagine for a second what life for him would have been like, okay? Put yourself in his shoes, and then you'll hear the impact of a verse you're very familiar with, John 3.16. You'll hear the impact when you know who it was spoken to, this kind of Nicodemus. Consider what life was like for Nicodemus. He knew that he was supposed to have power, because all the Old Testament scriptures talk about Walking in power, walking in wisdom, walking in light and strength if you're walking with the Lord. He knew he was supposed to feel strong and have power, but he never did. He was probably really confused about why, and he probably redoubled his efforts to make sure he would feel strong again. The only power in his relationship with God was his own willpower, his own effort. That's it. Seemed like the line was dead on the other end. He knew all the right words, but they had no impact, no meaning to him. He was able to talk theology. He was able to go to Bible studies and contribute. But there was a disconnect between his words and his head and his heart. There were two separate worlds going on, two-faced, duplicitous, two lives. And he felt the tension. And he probably hated the tension. And it probably had something to do with why he's going to Jesus in the middle of the night, talking to this teacher, this rabbi, to ask him questions. Religion for him was staying inside the lines. Don't sin too badly to where I actually need God's grace. Just kind of benign, minor, innocent little things that aren't super bad so that I don't have to end up going before God as a needy, helpless, hopeless person. So he stays in the lines. He colors inside the lines. He doesn't do anything really, really bad. His faith. His faith was kind of vague and fuzzy. You know, the very first verse of the passage Or, sorry, the second verse of the passage. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God's with them. That's faith. That's the kind of faith that's vague and fuzzy. It's the kind of faith that says, isn't it cool that God answered my prayer for my test? So that's, don't hear me wrong, that's a good thing. But I'm about to tell you some of my story, and you'll, you'll understand why I'm kind of identifying that particular thing. It's a very fuzzy faith that doesn't see a person. It's not a faith in a person. It's a mystical, spiritually kind of faith that says, isn't it cool that, and not in awe, in in trembling awe at who God is and what he's done and what he's about. But it's that shallow faith that everybody on planet Earth has. You know, every human being lives by faith. 
But it's that kind of dead faith, not the kind of living, vibrant faith. And so Nicodemus is always confused. John keeps pulling those details into the spotlight, right? He says, Jesus says, you won't understand, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is confused. He's like, am I supposed to go back in the womb a second time? He says to Jesus, how can this be? His world is blowing up and he doesn't know what to do about it. His world is being rocked. His paradigms are being turned upside down. He's a spiritual do-it-yourselfer. And it's sad because Nicodemus never knew what life was. And so he never knew he was dead. Oh, but fortunate for Nicodemus, he's talking to Jesus who touches people and they come to life. If you're going to find anybody in the middle of the night to talk to them about your hollowness, this is the guy to find. And so what does Jesus do? Here's my, a little bit of my story. Some of you know this. I, won't, I don't have time to go into much detail, but I know what it's like to be Nicodemus. Um, I know what it's like to be a black hole where there's a lot of nice-looking things on the outside and it seems like there's nothing, looking, nothing on the inside. I was raised in the church. I, had great, I have great parents. My church was great. I learned the things you're supposed to learn in church, but it was kind of in one ear and out the other. I could recite the right answers. I went to college. I went to church on Sunday morning. That's amazing. Every Sunday morning, I church hopped until I found a church where I thought could fill up the emptiness inside. But no one ever could. And I went to Bible studies. My fraternity had a Bible study. And so I would go to that, and we would tell inspiring stories. And we would read books on manhood that had nothing to do with Jesus, but a lot to do with that kind of stuff. And so that's what we did. We told each other stories. And and all of us, I think, were yearning for something rich, yearning for nourishment, but not finding any. And that was my life. For four years, hollow, empty. But I didn't know any different. I thought that's the way it's supposed to be. How do you know any different? I thought that's what this was supposed to be like. I thought the power in in my relationship with God all was supposed to come from me. And so I just trucked along, just like Nicodemus, having no idea of what the Bible was actually about, no idea of its power, no desire to be transformed by it. And what John says uh, down towards the end of the passage When he says, this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people loved their darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Do you want to know why it's impossible to save yourself? There's a lot of reasons. One is we're dead and dead people can't resuscitate themselves. Uh, we're, We're born dead. The other reason is we love darkness, right? What I love about RUF is we can come out of the closet and say, I love darkness. I don't just love walking with God. I also, part of me, loves walking away from him. You understand the difference there? I'm saying me in my essence, I want Jesus. I want him. I want him. But I find myself continually walking back to the pigsty. But before God made me alive, all I wanted was darkness. I wanted my sin. It was fun. It was exciting. It was electrifying. It's the thing that promised to fill up the hollowness inside. And that's what I clung to. God was a threat. He was boring. He was dull, if I had to be honest. The reason I went to church is because I was afraid of what he would do to me if I didn't talk about a loving, secure relationship. And so I did the deal. I did the Nicodemus deal. Outside, everybody thought I was the greatest guy. The fraternity guys thought I was amazing. But inside, I loved darkness, and I was dark. And so, this is where things began to turn for me. And I didn't ask for this. Um, God began to show me how dead I was. 
in myself. He began to show me how helpless I was in myself, how hopeless I was in myself. He began to show me, Ben, with you, it's impossible. Your whole life, you've accrued nothing. You've accumulated nothing but exhaustion, but emptiness, but hollowness. With you, it's impossible. And that was the most painful two months of my life because he showed me just enough of himself to know that I have no hope of ever changing myself or fixing myself. And so that was a very scary two months for me. But God did not stop there with me. Again, him, him making the first move, he taking initiative, he coming to me, not shouting from heaven, you come to me, but him coming to me, meeting me in my deadness, in my darkness, in my sin, came and breathed life to me, made me alive, birthed me into a whole new life and a whole new world. And I had no idea what was happening because I didn't have categories for this stuff, right? I had no idea what was happening. And so I found this today. I keep this with me. I only written in the first like three pages of this little bedazzled, sparkly red journal. My aunt gave it to me. I didn't buy it. But uh, this is, um, it, it's not my journal, I promise. Um, yeah. But I keep this because I wrote in the first few pages, and this is the only recollection I have of those first few days after Jesus came and gave new birth to me through the Spirit, where he said, rise up, live, be born again. No more death, life. And I had no idea to it. And so this is what I write. Um, don't worry, this is not anything that's going to make you blush. This is pretty standard. Um, but I, this is me trying to figure out what the heck just happened with me. January 31st, 2004. Oh, this is coming up on an anniversary here. In Nashville, I was at my fraternity formal. I had every intention of getting hammered, just like I'd done at every other formal. But in between the time I paid my money for this trip and went on the trip, Jesus gave me a new heart, like Michael read about earlier in Ezekiel 36. And this is me trying to figure out what happened. I believe that God is slowly changing me, my nature. I feel that maybe this time... There's something different about this spiritual high. Several spiritual questions are now burdening my mind that have never burdened it before. Such as, was I ever a Christian in high school? During youth group, or was I just a religious kid experiencing emotional as opposed to spiritual responses? These questions dig in on me. Because during all the time I claimed I was a Christian, from the time I was born until writing this, I professed certain beliefs, but my faith... And more importantly, my actions never told of a man whose life was under the control and the love of Jesus. In other words, I've never really felt before now that I was a new creation in Christ. I've never felt that I truly and most literally died to the old Ben and was raised up to a new one. But now for the first time in my 22 and three quarter year life, God has given me faith to believe that he is causing a deep change in me that he is revealing his son to me in a new and life-altering way. This is me in confusion trying to grapple with what in the world is happening. Because all I knew is I didn't want to do the things I signed up on that formal to do. And I didn't know why it was different. So here's the second part of the sermon. Um, and, and here's why we're spending so much time on the first and so little on the second. is because Jesus does that in the passage. The occasion for Jesus telling us the best news imaginable. That with God, anything's possible. Are you kidding? He's God. He is power. He is life. He is love. He is light. Of 
course anything is possible. But Jesus spends so much time saying, don't try this at home. It will kill you. He spends so much time saying it's impossible because that sets up what he's about to tell you in John 3.16 that everybody in the room knows. And so he's, he's kind of bringing us to a point where we're saying, okay, then how is anyone saved? How is anyone made alive? How does anyone have this happen to them if I'm dead? Well, here's the question I was left with after God kind of showed me that it was impossible with me. I was left with the question, can God save me and does he want to? The first one I could answer pretty easily because he's God. The second one I struggled with for a long time and sometimes I struggle with still. Does he want to? And here's where this passage sings to your soul. Um, in, in verse um, 14, maybe if you don't know your Bible very well, this might not make any sense to you, so I'll tell you really quickly what this story means. Jesus, Jesus says, you know, Nicodemus, with you it's impossible. With God, anything is possible. And here's, here's what's more. Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel. You know the Bible like the back of your hand. Do you remember, Nicodemus, in the fourth book of the Bible, in the book of Numbers, when God's people uh, had been grumbling complaining, cursing God, blaspheming God, saying, you brought us out here to kill us. Nicodemus, do you remember how God sent snakes to bite the people? Venomous snakes to bite the people in judgment so that they would begin to connect consequence with action, so that they would begin to see the danger and the death and sin. Nicodemus is probably like, okay, I remember that story. And he says, do you remember, was it just judgment there? What did God do? What did God tell Moses, the leader of the people, to do? So Nicodemus, do you remember that God told Moses, Moses, make a bronze snake and put it on a high pole and everybody who looks at that snake will be saved. Was there any power in that snake? No, it's a piece of metal. It had power because God promised, if you look and know that I will rescue you in the midst of your own mess, right? It was their mess. They made it. And he said, if you look to me from the midst of that, I will rescue you. Here's the setup for the verse you've always known. John 3.16 doesn't come in a vacuum. The very next verse, Jesus says this. And it's a little, I would, I would, this is one place where I'll say I'm glad I went to seminary. The Greek is a little bit, has a little bit different uh, of a meaning here in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Literally what he's saying is for this is how God loved the world. What Jesus is saying is right after he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake on, on the pole and the people who looked at him were saved, that is how God loved the world. He lifts up his son on the cross in the midst of our judgment, in the midst of us, in the mess of our own making. He puts his son up on the cross in the midst of that. And you want to know how God loves you. It's not sentiment. It's not emotion. That is how Jesus says God loves you. This is how God loved you. He raised up the Son that all who look to Him would have life, that all who look to Him would no longer be hollow, would come alive, would be born again. That's what He means. That's what Jesus is talking about when He says, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He sent His Son to impossibly stuck people. Why, am I t why did I choose this passage for a room largely full of Christians? Because it's easy to say, got it, got it, got it. Partly because of my story, because I, I, I thought I didn't need it. 
but I needed it. And partly because you and I keep sliding back into being in the midst of messes of our own making. The miserable messes of our own making. And we're not looking to Jesus. We're looking at myself, my faith, my performance, my ability to extricate myself out of this. Do-it-yourself spirituality. And God is saying, don't look away from yourself. Look at my son who I have raised up on the cross. Stop defining my love for you in weird teenage emotionalistic language. I don't love you just through sentiment. I love you this way. It's an efficacious, powerful love that makes you a new person. And that is the first time and the only way you will ever taste life. Only way, Jesus says, you must be born again. I want to end with a story and a quote. The story is right next door from us in Mesa, Arizona. Did you hear about this two weeks ago? A little two-year-old girl is walking with her mom. And she steps on top of one of those plastic septic tank covers. And the thing wasn't on there tightly, and so it kind of flipped. And she went straight down into the little shaft that goes down into the holding tank where you know what those things hold. And so she's down in there. She's two years old. She goes in, her mom hears a splash, and then nothing. No crying, no splashing, no movement, and she's frantic. And there's a guy, Henry Ricketts, is walking by. And Henry Ricketts hears her say, my daughter is in that tank. And he rips off his shirt, and he takes off his shoes, and down the hatch he goes. And he said he didn't see anything when he was down there. It was dark, and he couldn't see anybody. And so he goes under. And he starts swimming through a septic tank to find this girl. And he didn't find her the first time. And so he comes up for air and he goes down again. And he finds an ankle. And he grabs on and he pulls her up. And it gets worse because she's not breathing. And so he passes her up through the shaft and then he proceeds to give her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Mouth-to-septic-covered mouth. Dead girl in a septic tank, he jumps in and goes after her, brings her out, and breathes life into her. That is the gospel. Nobody could figure out why he did it. And they asked him, why did you jump into a septic tank? And he said, I don't care what she was in, there was a girl in there. That is what Jesus says as he looks over the septic tank of our lives, the septic tank of the world. I don't care what, is, what they're in. They're my people. And if it means swimming under crap, I'll swim under crap. And if it, means, if it means breathing life into these kind of people, I'll breathe life into them. That is what John's point is. This is how God loved the world. That septic tank story is a pitiful shadow of the reality of God's love for his people to gather us uh, to himself. Last thing is a quote from Frederick Buechner, and then we end. The quote is this. If you want it later, take a picture of it with your phone. He says, this is a summary of the sermon, a good way to end. He says, the gospel is bad news before it's ever good news. It's the news that man is a sinner, to use the old word or the old term, that he's evil in the imagination of his heart, and that when he looks in the mirror, all in a lather, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, and slob. That's the tragedy. That's the impossibility of the bad news. But it's also the news that he's loved anyway. 
cherished, forgiven, bleeding to be sure, but also bled for. That's the comedy of the gospel. And yet, so what? So what, if, so what if even in his sin, the slob is loved and forgiven when the very mark and substance of his sin and of his slobbery is that he keeps turning down love and forgiveness because he either doesn't believe them or doesn't want them or just doesn't give a damn? In answer, the news of the gospel is that extraordinary things happen to him, just as in a fairy tale, extraordinary things happen. He says, Zacchaeus climbs up a sycamore tree and a crook and climbs down a saint. Paul sets out a hatchet man for the Pharisees and comes back a fool for Christ. It is impossible for anybody to leave behind the darkness of the world he carries on his back like a snail. But for God, all things are possible. That's the fairy tale. And altogether, they are the truth. My question for you, no matter where you are with God, is what will it look like for you to take your eyes off of yourself and to put them on the one that God raised up right before your eyes? Will you look to him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we need help to do what we just said. So we pray both that you would raise yourself up in front of us that we might see you and for everyone in the room that you might give us eyes to truly see you as you are, to love you, to know that you are not the God who stands off in heaven watching everything go to hell in a handbasket. You're the one who flinches when we fall in the septic tank and moves towards us, rolling up your sleeves and jumping in, going underneath to pull us out, to make us new, to give us a whole new life with you forever. Do this, we pray, for your own sake. We ask it in your name. Amen.